Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Well, thanks very much indeed, Hannah, and thank you all for coming. I think this is one of the most sold-out uh, events that we've, we've had. I don't think there's a single spare seat in the House. And it's a very topical subject, this combination of militarism and miscalculation, which we see now unfolding in Ukraine and uh, other parts of the former Soviet Union, um, have awful echoes of gunshots in, in, in Sarajevo and the cataclysm that they um, brought about. But we're not here to talk about the origins of the, Second World, of the First World War, and we're not, also not going to talk about who's to blame. We're not going to talk about whether you should have hung the Kaiser or whether the Versailles Treaty um, laid the foundations of the Second World War. And we're not going to do any alternative history prior to 1914. So if you're dying to come up with your theory about how the Agadir crisis was mishandled or the role of the First, Second and Third Balkan Wars, save it for the discussion in the bar afterwards. We're going to stick strictly, strictly, to, and I'm sure with this audience you'll find a receptive, receptive uh, um, listener for any, any theory you have. Um, but we're going to stick strictly to the motion of Britain should not have fought in the First World War. But you've come to hear the panel, not me. So without further ado, I'm going to ask Dominic Sandbrook to go to the podium. He's a historian, columnist and broadcaster. He's best known for his acclaimed series of four books on post-war Britain, notably Seasons in the Sun, as well as his BBC television series on the 1970s and the Cold War. He's a regular book reviewer for the Sunday Times. Please welcome Dominic Sandbrook. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Ladies and gentlemen, you probably expect me to open with a tragic, tear-jerking story. A young man far from home, bleeding to death on a foreign field. His anxious mother watching for the postman's heavy tread, the telegram and the tears. But tonight, Professor Charmley and I will advance a case based not on emotion, but on hard historical fact. We will leave the sensationalism and the sentimentality to our opponents. <laughs> what we will show very simply 
is that Britain's participation in the First World War was a terrible mistake. I'm not a pacifist, and I am a patriot. When Britain fights wars, I want us to win. But victory in the First World War came at, frankly, too high a cost. In human life, we lost more than 700,000 men. In broken bodies, no fewer than 41,000 British soldiers returned home without an arm or a leg. In shattered mines, some 65,000 men were given disability pensions for severe shell shock, and that is probably a gross understatement. And there were other deeper costs. We went from being the world's biggest creditors to one of its greatest debtors. Hobbled by inflation and unemployment, we lost forever our position as the world's greatest economic and financial superpower. And in the end, we lost the one thing that our young men were told they were fighting for, our empire. It is no wonder that by the 1930s, when we'd already lost Ireland and were about to lose India, so many people believed that the First World War had been for nothing. Professor Charmley and I are not here to lecture you about the morality of wars or indeed to talk about who was responsible for this one. Our case is simply this, that once Austria, Serbia, Russia, Germany and France had taken up arms, we in Britain should have stayed on the sidelines and let them fight it out. Our opponents will try to persuade you that all the suffering, all the sacrifice was somehow worth it. They will paint a picture of a rapacious Germany stamping across the map of Europe led by a militaristic madman. And they will claim that we in Britain were leading a moral crusade, fighting for freedom and democracy. Now, Max Hastings and Margaret Macmillan are two of our finest historians, and I admire them enormously. But in this case, I'm sad to say they are mistaken. <laughs> Let's start with the Germans. Now, we're going to hear a lot about the Germans tonight, but I urge you to see through the xenophobic cliches and to concentrate on the historical facts. Germany had only come into being in 1871. We often see it as a kind of Victorian Sparta, all peaked helmets and bristling moustaches. But the reality was very different. Take the Kaiser, for example. He wasn't an absolute monarch, and he certainly wasn't a dictator. Yes, Queen Victoria's grandson was a braggart, and a bully. But as his most distinguished and up-to-date biographer, the Cambridge professor Christopher Clark, has shown beyond question the Kaiser never really wanted war. Wilhelm II always believed that the quarrel between Austria and Serbia would be a purely local affair. And when it looked as if the Russians would intervene, he tried to pull the Austrians back from the brink of all-out invasion. Our opponents will tell you that German militarism was a deadly threat, not just to Britain, but to European civilization. But you know what? In 1914, the German army boasted 761,000 men, well behind the French, 827,000, and the Russians, 1.4 million. Do you know how many wars Germany had fought by 1914? One, in southwest Africa. In the same period, Britain had fought in the Gold Coast, and in the Zulu War, and in Egypt, and in the Sudan, and in two Boer Wars, where we'd invented the concentration camp. So if an outside observer had been asked to pick out the battle-crazed imperialists, somehow I don't think he'd have picked the Germans. 
After all, the Kaiser's Germany had the biggest socialist party in Europe, its strongest trade unions and its most developed welfare state. In 1900, 22% of German men were entitled to vote, and in Britain, 18%. So it's a very strange claim that we were fighting for democracy against a country that was actually more democratic than we were. And when you look closely at our allies, the idea of the First World War as a moral crusade evaporates completely. First, there was France, proportionately the most militaristic country in Europe, bitter, brooding, itching for a rematch with the Germans after the debacle of 1870. Then Russia. Let's take a moment to ask ourselves, how on, how on earth could we have been fighting a crusade for freedom and democracy, shoulder to shoulder with Tsarist Russia, then one of the most violent, reactionary and repressive regimes on the planet. You know, Mr Chairman, when British newspapers needed pictures to accompany their grossly embellished stories of German crimes in Belgium, they used photos of anti-Semitic pogroms carried out by the Russian government. That, I think, rather says it all. Then there was plucky little Serbia, a country that had launched two wars of conquest in the Balkans in 1912 and 1913, a country whose nationalist paramilitaries had raped and murdered their way across Albania and Macedonia, a country that had been sponsoring terrorist atrocities for years. <laughs> and finally, brave little Belgium, the country that had killed 10 million people in the Congo. <laughs> I'll, uh, I shall wrap up. Mr Chairman, in a few moments, Max and Margaret will paint you an elegant, entertaining and, alas, a largely fictional portrait of an alternative Europe if we had stayed out and let the Germans win. Of course, we can't know exactly what would have happened if we had stayed on the sidelines, but we do know what would have happened, Mr Chairman, when we went in. Ypres, Passchendaele, the Somme, the Russian Revolution, the rise of Stalin, Hitler and the Holocaust. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what we got by going in. So I'll leave you with this simple question. Do you really think that any alternative could really have been worse? Thank you. Thanks, thanks very much indeed, um, Dominic. And now it's over to Sir Max Hastings, historian, journalist, former newspaper editor, author of 20 books. His latest is Catastrophe. Europe Goes to War, 1914. He's also writing and presenting a BBC Two documentary on the outbreak of war and will be a key figure in the centenary events in 2014. Please welcome Sir Max Hastings. <clears throat> Dominic has just advanced a case that there was no reason why the local difficulty on the continent need have had anything to do with us. He is among those who cherish what I suggest is a popular delusion, that the two global conflicts belong to different moral orders, that where 1939-45 for Britain was a good war, 1914-18 was a bad one, though John Charmley goes a long stride further, believing that we could have stayed out of both struggles. The British people have always had a vivid idea of what they think happened in World War II, 
Until 1941, we defied the vast evil of Nazism alone, and then we defeated Hitler with a touch of help from the Red Army and the United States. <laughs> um, the struggle was nothing like as bloody as its predecessor, so people kid themselves, uh, because we had better generals who understood that our soldiers shouldn't be allowed to become futile sacrifices. But our ideas about the First World War are thoroughly confused. Some of those involved uh, in organising this year's commemoration of 1914-18 seem eager to make discussion of the cause for which the struggle was fought as vague as possible, to make the theme of this year regret and even apology. Tonight, Margaret and I are going to suggest to you a different view, that while the war was assuredly a colossal tragedy, it's a huge mistake to confuse depiction of its horrors, as Dominic has just done, uh, with argument about why it was necessary to fight. We believe that there was a cause at stake, that Britain couldn't plausibly have remained neutral while Germany secured hegemony over the continent. Dominic's absolutely correct that in 1914 Germany had the largest socialist party in Europe, but Germany's tragedy was that that socialist party, which was devoutly anti-militaristic, had no power whatsoever over the vital issues of war and peace, which were entirely decided by the Kaiser, his nominated chancellor, and his nominated generals. Though it's quite mistaken to equate Wilhelm's Germany with that of Hitler, we submit that Western civilization has almost as much reason to be grateful that the Allies prevailed in 1918 as in 1945, despite the appalling cost, and even if the outcome of the first clash proved to have a tragic impermanence, because Germany had to be fought all over again a generation later. Throughout the so-called July crisis, much of the Liberal Party, and indeed most of the British people, opposed involvement in Europe's looming war. They had no sympathy for either Serbia or Russia. Some indeed had a real fellow feeling towards Germany and its culture. Its war plan demanded an assault on France through Belgium, of whose neutrality Britain was a guarantor. Berlin formally notified London of its intention to invade. In 1914, Moltke, Germany's chief of staff, was so sure that Britain was going to come into the war anyway, that he decided that marching through neutral Belgium would change nothing. He could not have been more wrong. That decision caused the British government to send an ultimatum to Germany, committing the country to fight unless the invaders drew back, as of course they did not. It's sometimes said that Belgian neutrality was just a pretext rather than a real reason for Britain joining the conflict. I don't agree. Although Asquith, Gray, Churchill, Haldane wanted to back France to preserve the European balance of power, much of their own Liberal Party was vehemently opposed until the Germans invaded Belgium, an action that united the British people as nothing else could have done. On the 4th of August, Britain became the last major European power to enter the struggle. A few historians argue that this country could have stayed neutral in 1914 while Germany secured its almost inevitable victory on the continent and that we could have prospered mightily by doing so. But the dominating instincts of Germany's leadership, repeatedly articulated by the Kaiser and his generals, would hardly have been moderated by triumph in 1914. They didn't go to war with a grand plan for world domination, but soon after war had broken out, they identified massive territorial rewards as their price for granting an armistice to the Allies. Had the Kaiserreich vanquished its only important continental rivals, it seems fantastic to imagine that its rulers 
would afterwards have offered a generous accommodation to a neutral Great Britain or acquiesced in a global status quo still dominated by British financial interests. Anybody who doubts the earnest of Germany's commitment to impose a draconian peace should consider the March 1918 Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which Berlin imposed on the defeated Russians. To believe that Britain could and should have acquiesced in a German triumph in 1914 requires one to believe in the moderation and the generosity of Germany's rulers, as some of us cannot. 1914 Germany, as ruled by the Kaiser and his generals and ministers, represented a malign force whose triumph had to be frustrated. The supreme irony of 1914 is that so great was Germany's economic and industrial achievement at that period, it had so far overtaken Russia and France and, uh, and Britain that I believe that if war had not come, nothing could have prevented Germany from dominating Europe within a generation by entirely peaceful means. But it's no good to me dismissing the Kaiser and his generals as somehow comic opera figures um, who we shouldn't take seriously. In the last resort, for better or for worse, the Kaiser was in charge of Germany. The Kaiser was the man who ruled this country. The Kaiser was the man who signed the order for Germany to go to war. And I do not believe that Britain could have stood by and watched while this took place. More than 700,000 British servicemen who perished between 1914 and 18 didn't die for nothing. Um, all deaths in all wars are just cause for lamentation. But whatever the shortcomings of the peace made by the Allies at Versailles, if Germany had been dictating the terms, there could have been no return to honey for tea at Grantchester or indeed across the British Empire. I believe that we have to fight. Thank you very much. Thanks very much indeed, um, Max. And for those who've been fans of your work of many years, hearing you praising a socialist party was a particularly beautiful <laughs> touch, in the, touch in that speech. Let's remember that magic moment. Um, I'm now going to turn to John Charmley, um, speaking to the second, uh, seconder of the motion. He's Professor of Modern History at the University of East Anglia, the author of Splendid Isolation, Britain and the Balance of Power, 1874 to 1914. He's best known for his revisionist interpretation of British foreign policy in the mid-20th century, to which Max just referred. Please welcome John Charney. Thank you, Mr Chairman. It's, I feel a bit like that moment in Sebastian Folk's book when the bombardment stops... And although I'm not going to do the bird song after Sir Max's wonderful bombardment, I do feel a little shell-shocked, but I shall gather my forces and attempt to, uh, to suggest that we've listened to the most marvellous bit of fiction, counterfactual history at its most imaginative. Because, of course, always with the counterfactual it's always, it would have been dreadful, darlings, and the Germans are beastly. But the problem with this bit of counterfactual is it's actually really rather easily answered. It was only, what, half a century earlier that Germany did win a major war against France. It did actually annex Alsace-Lorraine. It put a huge indemnity upon the French. And do you know what? 
the skies did not fall in. Kaiser Wilhelm I and Bismarck were not nice men. They were not Democrats either. Bismarck was the man who had united Germany, or as some of us would see it, divided uh, Großer Deutschland with a policy of blood and iron. And yet, do you know, the Kaiser Reich was not the Third Reich. By 1913-14, although the Kaiser and Bettmann Hollweg and the elite were hanging on, quite clearly the forces of real democracy were baying at their heels. The German militarists were nervous. They could see that things were not going their way. So I think the idea that Germany would have won and in the circumstances of 1914, after a six-weeks war, which is about what it would have taken, they would have enacted the kind of peace they put in place in 1918, again, is simply counterfactual imagination. Placing the thing at its worst. It always imagines that somehow German hegemony would have been there forever. It wouldn't have been. How on earth would the Kaiser Reich, which was having enough trouble with its own blooming socialists, have actually managed to dominate Europe militarily? It would have been a repeat of 1871. Britain had stayed out in 1866. Britain had stayed out in 1871. And the skies had not fallen in, nor would they in 1914. Our major enemies for most of the 19th century, of course, had been the French and the Russians. So how do we end up actually fighting on their side? We end up fighting on their side by what I would call the Sir Edward Grey and the Tar Baby solution. Because what poor Sir Edward, who was haunted by the isolation that Britain had suffered when he'd been undersecretary to Rosebery in 1894-95, he was frightened of British isolation. So he hung rather as a poor old Br'er Rabbit did to the Tar Baby. He hung to the French and he hung to the Russians, despite the fact that quite clearly by 1913, the Russians, who had begun to recover from the Russo-Japanese War and the defeat inflicted upon them, were up to their old tricks in the great game, opposing British interests in India, opposing British interests in the Middle East, all the things that Curzon said in, 1907, in 1907 when he opposed the Anglo-Russian Entente were coming true. The Russians were far, a far greater threat to Britain than Germany. Yes, the Germans had had their navy, but by 1913 they'd given up. The British had won the naval race. By 1913-14, Britain was in the strongest diplomatic position she had been for a generation. All the nightmares that Grey had feared and that the imperialists had feared had not come to pass. Germany had given up the naval race. Britain had won. The French, well, the French were what the French always were. They were looking for revenge, but they were... Their appetite was so great, but their teeth were so bad. <laughs> and the Russians, the Russians were the Russians... The Russians were the real threat to British power. This is about Britain's national interests. And you know, the odd thing when you examine the debates in the cabinet in August 1914 is that very few cabinet ministers agreed with Sir Max's line. 
Asquith feared at one point that more than half the cabinet would resign. Now, either we are in the presence of an awful lot of men who, of course, didn't enjoy not just the perfect vision of 2020 hindsight, but didn't actually share Sir Max's line that the Germans were this huge danger. There certainly was a group around Gray and the old liberal imperialists with a few Tory tub thumpers too, who were very keen to get involved in the war. But most of the cabinet were not, and most of the cabinet were right. What were the British actually really worried about in July you know, so far, what we keep hearing is we retrofit from 1918 back to 1914. Let's recreate 1914. Britain was on the verge of civil war. Civil war over Ireland. This was the major problem facing the cabinet. And in some senses, one of the things that the crisis in August does is it allows politicians to distract themselves from the impending civil war. The only thing that one could say that the First World War does for Britain is it stops a civil war in Ireland. I suspect there were other ways of doing that, you know. So in short, most of the cabinet in 1914 did not think that if Germany won, the skies would fall in. Back in 1871, when Germany did win, the skies did not fall in. There was no domination over the whole of Europe. You only have to stop and think for a moment of the trouble the Germans had managing their own politics in the Kaiserreich. That's all you have to think about. To imagine that this ramshackle, and it was really beginning to creak at the seams by 1913, to imagine that this ramshackle political settlement that Bismarck had cobbled together would have been able to have exercised some kind of military dictatorship over Europe is the worst kind of counterfactual history. But the opposition really have to engage in it, because if they don't, it becomes perfectly obvious that it was not in Britain's interest to fight in World War I. And Grey was wrong, palpably wrong, when in 1914 in the House of Commons on the 3rd of August, he said nothing could be worse than, if, than us being left out of this war. Well, the rest of the history of 20th century Europe was a sad threnody on that theme and showed how wrong he was. The consequences were dire and they were not worth it. And Britain had the choice of staying out and politicians got it wrong. And since then, politicians and historians have united to give you this myth. And I ask you tonight to repudiate a century of myth-making and to vote in favour of the fact that Britain should have stayed out of this ghastly foreign mess. Thank you. Now, our last speaker um, against the motion is Margaret Macmillan, who's the warden of St Anthony's College, Oxford, and professor of international history at that university. She's the author of numerous historical books. The latest is The War That Ended Peace, The Road to 1914. Please welcome Margaret Macmillan. Well, perhaps as a Canadian, I should also mention that we like peacekeeping. 
But tonight, I'm afraid, um, I can't try and keep the peace, not after the outrageous things which we have heard from our opponents, <laughs> in response to a very calm and reasoned statement by my partner, Max Hastings. I would argue that Britain had reason to fight the First World War. I think we need to look at those reasons. And I think we need to look at them treating history with respect. Um, Dominic Sandbrook and John Charmley have both talked about how we must have hard historical facts. In fact, what they've given us is a great many um, confections of interpretation. What they've also done is, is turn their faces firmly against counterfactuals, but it seems to me they have produced an enormous counterfactual. We see a picture of a happy Europe, united, harmonious, Kaiser Wilhelm II, a sort of banky moon of the continent, <laughs> smiling benevolently around, bringing peace, getting the Serbs under control, running the German Empire. But let us remember what the world was like in 1914, and let us not patronize those who had to make what were very, very difficult decisions at the time. We know how the story turned out. And so it's very easy for us to say what fools they were. They should have known that Passchendaele was on the way. They should have known that Verdun was going to happen. They should have known that Ypres was going to happen. They should have known that the first day of the Somme was coming. That, it seems to me, is like saying that those who started the Industrial Revolution should have known that we were going to get climate change in the 21st century. We can't read back into the past what we know happened. Yes, we know that the war turned into a stalemate, and it was a dreadful war in many ways. But that was not what people knew at the time. We don't actually know what was said in the cabinet debates terribly well because there is no record of those. But what we can see from the diaries of people at the time is that they agonized over the decision. It was not an easy decision, and they weighed many of the questions that we have been weighing here tonight. What was at issue for Britain in 1914 were a number of things, and I think it's very important, again, to remember that and to treat those who had to make the decisions with the respect that they deserve. They did not make these decisions lightly. These were not a bunch of upper-class toffs saying, let's send a whole lot of boys over to France and see what happens. I mean, these were people who thought very seriously about what it meant and, and thought very seriously about the alternatives before them. The issues in 1914 were not about fighting for democracy, I mean, that is absolutely wrong. People didn't go in to the First World War thinking they were fighting for democracy, nor did they go in, if I may disagree with that great historian Michael Gove, saying we are fighting for a liberal international order. <laughs> you did not see people lining up outside the recruiting statements saying, goodbye, mother, I'm off to fight for a liberal international order. <laughs> what they thought they were fighting for were a number of things. They thought they were fighting for the rights of small nations, and that meant Belgium. The German plans called for an invasion of Belgium, which was a neutral country. Its neutrality had been guaranteed by the European powers, including Germany itself. That was what really swayed David Lloyd George, who was one of the leading anti-war figures in the cabinet up until the summer of 1914. He wrote to his wife in North Wales and said, we cannot stand by and see the rights of small nations violated like this. And I think there was a very strong sense in Britain at the time, that Belgium was defenseless. It was attacked unprovoked by Germany. The Germans sent an ultimatum to the Belgian government saying, we want you to show that you will be friends with us, so would you please hand over your frontier forts and let us go through and attack France. And the Belgians chose to resist and paid a terrible price for that. Britain also had obligations to France. It had built up those obligations over a number of years. 
It had held military conversations with the French in which the British had said, look, we will, when a war starts, send our troops to this place, to this railway depot. What arrangements will you make? The French had every reason to expect that a British force would come to their aid. Similar naval arrangements. The French had pulled a lot of their ships into the Mediterranean to protect sea lanes in the Mediterranean, assuming that the British would defend the French coasts along the Channel and in, 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 the, in the Atlantic. More than that, there was a general sense that the British and French worked together. And so the French did have reason to think that the British were with them, were on their side. It was Germany that attacked France without any provocation whatsoever. So there were moral responsibilities. I, I would argue there were not legal responsibilities, but certainly responsibilities that built up over the years. I think there was also the question of British interests. Was it really in British interest to let Germany dominate the continent? The British, yes, have wanted a balance of power in Europe, but what they have not wanted is a single hegemon. That's why they went into the Napoleonic Wars, to prevent that happening. That's why they formed coalitions against Louis XIV. That's why they saw they had to go into the First World War, and that's why they saw they had to go into the Second World War. More than that, the British felt... And I think this was not just those sitting in Whitehall. This was the people who went to join up, including my own ancestors, who felt they were defending something important. They felt they were defending a way of life. They felt they were defending home and hearth. They felt they were defending values which they thought were important. Let's not treat them with condescension. They thought they were fighting for something important. And let us think of what Germany might have been if it had won. This is not a counterfactual. These, these are strong probabilities. Germany was an uneasy country. It was not the militaristic nation of caricature, but it was a nation in play. There were different forces within Germany. That yes, there was a growing socialist party. Yes, there were German liberals, but there was a very, very strong and reactionary upper class, many of whom saw war as a very good opportunity to get rid of all the things they didn't like. As soon as the war broke out, the Kaiser and his circle were talking about getting rid of the Reichstag, suspending the Constitution, and in a very sinister foretaste of what was going to come, rounding up the Jews and getting them out of finance, limiting the power of what some reactionary Germans saw as too powerful um, German-Jewish uh, German finance. And it was not a country that was necessarily going to be well disposed towards Britain. If Germany had dominated the country, would it have held out a friendly hand to Britain? I don't think so. Britain and Germany were already trade rivals. The Germans had started a naval race with Britain, knowing that for Britain the navy was its shield and its defense and the way in which it linked to its empire and protected the British Isles. It had already tried to stir up trouble in the British Empire. The idea that Germany would have said to the British, a triumphant Germany would have said to the British, hang on to your empire, we don't care about it, is wrong. The Germans had been intriguing with Indian nationalists who had been to Berlin, who had been encouraged by the Kaiser. And the Kaiser is not just a comic opera figure. He's a meddlesome and dangerous figure who spoke too much and said too many things, but that doesn't make him any the less dangerous. The Kaiser had proclaimed himself already in the 1890s the protector of all Muslims around the world. And, of course, he was going to call a jihad almost as soon as the war started to encourage the Muslim citizens of the British and French empires to rise up against them. And so to assume that this would have been a benevolent Germany who would have said to the British, war's over, we've got the French under our control, we've annexed Belgium and the Netherlands, we've basically dominating the center of Europe, Austria-Hungary is, is now under control. Keep your empire, we're friends, we don't really wish you any harm. I think we're dreaming, and I think our opponents are dreaming if they think that. And let us also remember what British entry into the war did. And this is not, again, a counterfactual. The British expeditionary force 
turned the tide at a time when it looked like France was going to be defeated. We will never know how close we came to a repeat of the summer of 1940, but without the British Expeditionary Force, without the First Battle of the Marne, I think it is highly likely that Germany had won. So were the costs too high? We can't know, and it is not for us to tell those people then that the costs were too high. But they were no higher in terms of lives lost than they had been in the Napoleonic Wars. In terms of British population at the time, 10 million British in the, in the, in the, in the period of the Napoleonic Wars, over 300,000 dead. In the, in the First World War, 46 million people in the British Isles and almost half a million dead. And that, of course, isn't including the empire as well. The empire paid a very heavy price, but speaking as a Canadian, we didn't think that price was too high. And so I think the motion should be defeated. Well, I'd like to thank um, all the speakers, um, first of all, for their concision and sticking within the time, um, secondly, for sticking to the point, and thirdly, for the way in which they've accused the others of using sentiment while using it themselves. <laughs> it's absolutely admirable. Anyone here wants to study debating, this is how it's done. Um, so it's now over to you. First of all, the gentleman there, um, would you stand up, sir, so that they see you? Thank you. Go. Professor Macmillan is uh, very persuasive, but doesn't the success of Angela Merkel and her welcome by the British press and the British Parliament show that we would have done better to make friends with our cousins before the First World War rather than fighting Thank you very much. Um, so before, while Margaret just collects her thoughts, um, the opening uh, vote was um, before the debate was 19% for the motion, and 40% against the motion, and 41% don't know. So that is a quite a strong performance for the against, but everything to play for um, for the supporters of the motion. Now, Margaret, over to you. Well, I think to look at Angela Merkel talking you know, benevolently here is, again, to, to read the, part, the present into the past. It was a very different Germany in 1914, and it takes two sides to make friends. And although the British had carried on naval conversations trying to end the naval race with Germany, it hadn't happened, mainly because the Germans wouldn't give up and mainly because the Germans were insisting on a very large um, colonial empire. So I think it's not just Britain's fault that there's not a friendship between Britain and Germany before 1914. It's German ambitions, German rivalry. I mean, the one thing the British are sensitive about is their navy because it is so important for these islands. And so when the Germans opened a naval race with the British, they were challenging Brit Britain in its very security, in its very being. And, of course, the German theory, which was an absolutely crackpot one, was that by building a big navy, they'd force the British to be friends. Um, you can all see the flaw in that logic. What it did was, in fact, turn the British to looking to other allies. In fact, I would blame the Germans for the division of Europe into two alliance systems. The British would not have abandoned isolation and, and, and mended fences with the French and the Russians and signed a treaty with Japan if it had not been for the German naval race. Very good. Um, Donald, do you want to come on that? Uh, let me just uh, talk about, uh, answer that last point. The naval race was over. Britain had won it. It was definitively over. Britain had won it hands down, so it was no longer really a factor. And the gentleman who asked the question is quite right. Britain had arguably closer intellectual 
academic and cultural links with Germany before the First World War than it had with almost any other nation in Europe. So the idea that we could have come together after the war is perfectly plausible. As for the gentleman who asked about uh, whether a stalemate could have been predicted, um, that actually picks up an odd thing that Margaret Mimelin said in her um, otherwise um, entertainingly plausible um, speech... Uh, she said they couldn't have known how awful it would be. But I don't think that's quite right, because in July 1914, Asquith said explicitly, Europe is on the brink of Armageddon. Happily, we will probably not be involved. If only he'd stuck to that, we'd be in a much better place today. Max, do you want to come in there? Two points. Uh, first of all, I must say I'm moved to cite Sir Michael Howard, who I still regard as, as Britain's greatest historian on this issue. Michael has always taken the view, which I very much follow him about, that the essential problem for Britain, if we'd stayed neutral, was that Michael, as I do, and I think Margaret does too, finds it impossible to believe that um, after a German victory on the continent, within a very short time, we shouldn't have found ourselves obliged to fight Germany because Germany would not have been prepared to tolerate a world in which Britain still dominated international trade and uh, also still dominated the world's financial system. One point I must pick up, uh, made by John Charmley. He said, oh, if there'd just been a short war on the continent, the Germans would never have done anything terrible to uh, um, their defeated foes. Well, this is simply not true, because on September the 9th, 1914, when the war had been going for less than a month, that the Chancellor, Germany's Chancellor, drafted a shopping list of what Germany wanted as its price for peace. France was to surrender its entire iron ore deposits, the frontier region of Belfort, coastal strip from Dunkirk to Boulogne to be resettled by German veterans, the western slopes of the Vosges Mountains. Her strategic fortresses were to be demolished and huge cash reparations paid, Luxembourg to be annexed outright, Belgium and Holland transformed into vassal states, Russia's borders drastically shrunken, a vast colonial empire created in Central Africa, together with an economic union extending from Scandinavia to, 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 to Turkey. Now, if, 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 if John Charmley... If, if, if John Charmley and Dominic believe that this was an acceptable price to pay for peace, well, some of us do not. John, do you want to come back on the Kaiser's shopping list? Which bits of that do you think were unacceptable? I think, there's a, I think again, one sees this need to go to the worst possible case scenario. Yeah, of course, Bethman Holbeck wrote a shopping list. The idea that if Germany had won, he'd have got it all and would have been able to hang on to it all is, again, the worst sort of counterfactual history because what actually happened... But it's what he did at brest That's after four years, Max. And if you're going to do proper counterfactual history, you can't say that after four years hard fighting and millions of lives lost and millions of pounds spent, you would have got what you got in 1914. The things are quite different. And the point here about 1870... No, neither Dominic nor myself has imagined any fairy tale world. The fairy tales are coming from the other side and they're all bogeyman, (laughs) you know... Poor boogeyman's going to frighten us, or maybe not. By 1875, France was so recovered that we had the major war in sight crisis when Bismarck 
tried to manufacture the circumstances for another war because the French recovered so blooming quickly. So again, there's this, this imaginary scenario where the French, yes, the French would have suffered. The idea that he would have been a, the Kaiser would have been able to impose the peace on the Russians he wanted when the Austrians would not have been able and the Kaiser would not have been able to have mounted a long war on that front because it wasn't planned, again, is a fantasy. Yes, the French would have lost. They lost in 1871, they recovered pretty quickly. Right. Um, I'm going to ask everybody to try and be um, brief so we get as many as possible. I'm going to take um, two questions to start there. And the gentleman at the back has been immensely patient. He's got his hand up. Uh, he's had his hand up for a very long time. So then, and then the lady there, and um, then we'll see how we get on. Go ahead, sir. Right, thank you very much. Um, Darnick Sandbrook said we're in danger of creating a composite bogeyman Germany, uh, Hitler plus uh, Kaiser. Isn't he in danger of creating an artificially divided historical Germany? Because there are plenty of things, um, straws in the wind, in the Kaiser's Germany, which indicate the fundamentally reactionary direction German intellectual and social life was taking, whereas British intellectual and social life was taking a liberal direction. It had a liberal government, and that liberal direction was in part responsible for loosening the empire towards the Commonwealth. So Britain was on the side of the angels, I put it to you. Thanks very much. I'm gonna, um, we'll take one more question. Yes, um, go ahead, sir. Yes, I have a question for both, actually. For those that are for... How would Britain, do you think, should have reacted if Germany had controlled France post that event? For those against, if Germany hadn't gone to France through Belgium, would you still have intervened? Thank you. You've broken my rule about two questions. They are very good ones. Um, Yes, Dominic. Uh, Let me uh, answer the, 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 the first question which talked about creating a divided historical Germany and argued that Germany had reactionary tendencies. I think if you looked from the viewpoint of the 21st century at all the Edwardian uh, societies or in the first years of the 20th century, they would all appear to our eyes reactionary in one way or another. But it is simply untrue that Germany would have loomed largest as the most reactionary and the most illiberal. In fact, the welfare reforms that were passed in Germany in the first part of the 20th century were a model to societies all over the world, including, for example, the progressive reformers in America of uh, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Woodrow Wilson administrations, many of whom modelled some of their reforms on what had happened in the Kaiser's Germany. So it was hardly some model of reaction. In fact, if you wanted a model of reaction, you could do no better than look at our close, beloved ally, the Tsarist Empire of Russia, which was the most reactionary society on the planet and with whom we were fighting hand in hand. Very good. Max, do you want to come... A very interesting question was, um, if, it hadn't, if they hadn't invaded Belgium, would we still have been right to fight? I think it would have been very difficult to persuade the British people, certainly half the Cabinet and much of the Liberal Party, considered that, um, that Serbia and Russia deserved absolutely no sympathy at all. And I'm one of those. I would say myself that if the Germans had not gone into Belgium, I would find it very difficult to say I would assuredly have said that uh, we could and should have fought in 1914... Um, but I do urge, I do think it's so important in this whole debate that we just keep trying to close our eyes and not see things through this 21st century prism and look at them then. One point I have to pick up on Dominic. Um, when he said absolutely rightly about the Germans' enlightened um, social legislation, which was true, I, um, I've written myself and I said this evening, Germany was in many ways the most advanced society in Europe, but it was cursed by this extraordinarily dysfunctional uh, system of government. And one point that hasn't been made so far that does deserve to be made 
is quite a lot of the people around the Kaiser. Well, it actually it has, what Margaret said in some degree, one of the reasons they were keen to fight in 1914 uh, was that they believed not only that uh, they could achieve a triumph over France, but if they did so, it would enable them to see off their own socialists. So I don't think that uh, John or Dominic can make a credible point of, isn't it wonderful that, um, that Germany had such a powerful socialist movement when seeing off those same socialists was one of the Kaiser's purposes. And one quick point I'd make uh, generally about... Um, um, this warmonger business. Um, to take a few random quotes uh, of things said by um, key Germans in the years before the war, um, Moltke says to the Austrian chief of staff, February 1913, Austria's fate will be decided not along the bug, but rather along the Seine. Moltke again, October 1912, if war is coming, I hope it will come soon before I'm too old to cope with things satisfactorily. Um, um, the Germany's quartermaster general writes in May 1914 memorandum expressing dis dismay about the long-term strategic prospects saying Germany had no reason to expect to be attacked soon but should a war come the chances of achieving a speedy victory in a major European war are still today very favorably soon however this will no longer be the case nobody in Britain ever said anything remotely resembling that uh, in the years leading up to 1914. I'm driven back again and again to the fact that whatever one says about Britain's position in 1914, any suggestion that there were warmongers who were eager to fight, nobody wanted to fight, but it was felt the Germany we were up against was a Germany that had to be resisted. John? I find that curious, because Max has just said that uh, it's, if it wasn't for the invasion of Belgium... This horrible Germany he's con conjured up, he would not perhaps have been in favour of fighting it. It would have been fantastically so, difficult so politically to make it, that. Not case. only would it have been fantastically difficult, it would have been impossible, and Asquith knew it was impossible. And it's quite clear that it's that that tips Lloyd George over. And this is why the other side keep having to retrofit and go backwards. They keep saying, imagine how it was in 1914. Our side is doing just that. The people who were taking these decisions did not take the view that Margaret and Max took because they didn't have 20-20 hindsight of bogeymen. They took a rational decision and their view was that the danger was not so great but that the Belgian thing meant they had to go in. Now, I'd be absolutely fascinated. If there's anyone here from Germany who'd like to ask a question, that would be really interesting. Um, stick your hands up, wave around. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, I'm 100% German. Um, my, both my grandfathers uh, fought in both wars. And uh, I was always struck by the anti-Semitism of, um, uh, of my grandparents. And I'm sort of curious how you think Germany would have developed um, had uh, Britain not fought and what would have happened um, to German anti-Semitism um, if it had been left unchecked. Thanks very much. Any other Germans want to... Yes? Yes, well, I, I'm half Austrian, and my that grandparents... <laughs> <laughs> my grandparents fought on both sides of the First World War. Um, and uh, I just want to take issue with one point that uh, Sir Max Hastings keeps making, which is that there, are no, there were no warmongers in Britain at the time. I think he only needs to turn to his left and speak to Professor Macmillan, who very recently... Um, in, in her most recent book, quotes Jackie Fisher, who was in charge of the Navy in, in Britain, on two occasions being dissuaded by politicians from mounting a unilateral attack on the German Navy. 
Good point. Um, and, That's a perfectly um, fair point about Jackie Fisher. Yeah, you, you, we'll come to you in a moment. Um, and finally, while I'm doing my kind of multinational round, any Belgians here with a view on <laughs> whether, we, whether they were grateful we went to war on their behalf? <laughs> so, no, no Belgians. Any other questions? Right, open house again. Go ahead, sir. Yes. Um, gentleman at the back. No, he's not missing. Um, let's have that gentleman there. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. Yes, the microphone's just behind you. Turn around. Sorry. Turn around. Turn around, behind you. Um, I I just have a quick question for the two uh, proposers for the motion. Do you gentlemen have trouble, um, given the, uh, until very recently, any questioning of the First World War was perceived to be sort of undemocratic, an insult to the glorious dead, etc.? And have we not suffered recently, uh, well, until very recently, uh, from not being able to have a dispassionate analysis of this because of that? One sees some similar signs when people want to criticise Afghanistan and Iraq, but I won't go to go there. But uh, thank you. Very good. Let's have a couple of questions up there. Go ahead. Okay. Well, um, I hope this question is relevant and interesting. Uh, it, let's say that Britain decided to keep out of the First World War if the Germans had won, and if the Kaiser decided to, as uh, Max put it, impose their shopping list upon Europe. Surely then Britain would have been, uh, would have declared or would have seen this shopping list and decided that they weren't going to stand for it and would have, could have stopped Germany in peacefully or by war from imposing this shopping list. And, oh, yeah. Okay, and behind you, is that someone there? Yes. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Just to put into context the 6,000 Belgians that uh, Max Hastings mentioned as being shot by the Germans, I looked up the number of Boer women and children killed by the British in the Boer War. It seems to be about at least 30,000. And I also thought it would be useful to read out the key quote from Edward Gray's address in the House of Commons in 1914, because it helps us really sum up what the mind frame was then. Um, and he says, If in a crisis like this we run away from those obligations of honour and interest as regards the Belgian Treaty, I doubt whether whatever material force we might have at the end it would be of very much value in the face of the respect that we should have lost. So my question to the opposers of the motion is, was the First World War, the casualties and the money that it cost, really worth respect and honour? Thank you. Right. And very, just ten words from the gentleman there, we'll get to the panel. Isn't, isn't the key point that the war to end all wars didn't? <laughs> Thank you. Right. Um, let's go from left to right. This time. Do you have um, Whenever anyone says this isn't the key point, I always get a bit nervous because there are many key points. And, yes, it didn't end all wars, but that would be expecting more of human nature than I think we're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it, we, we, mustn't look, we mustn't be looking back at the beginnings of the war in, 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 in our knowledge of what happened later. Um, let me just make two points. Um, one about Germany, and I, I would like to stress it was very much a country in play. I mean, there were forces within Germany which were pushing it this way and that. It was not yet settled at all. But what was worrying about Germany was the power of the military. Jackie Fisher was sometimes, well, eccentric is a polite way of saying sometimes crazy, Um, But he was kept firmly under civilian control. The German military went under civilian control. They made their plans to fight a two-front war, didn't inform the civilian government until 1912, and the civilians simply acquiesced. In 1913, there was a very telling incident in Alsace, which had been annexed in Zabern, where a German officer beat up local people, treated them in contempt. The authorities reacted not by punishing the military who'd done this, but by defending them, 
and by throwing their opponents, those, those locals who were criticizing them, in jail. So I think you had a very worrying development in Germany, potential in Germany, which I think would have made, would have, would have made a real difference. As far as the issue of respect goes, it actually does matter to nations whether they have a sense of respect. And respect isn't just some vacuous notion of honor. Respect is about whether you stand true to your principles. And I think the British felt they were standing true to their principles in 1914. We can disagree, but let's not condescend to them. Uh, well, I would completely disagree with Margaret Memlin's last point. I don't think uh, 700,000 dead British men were worth any amount of respect. That's the talk of the, talk of the street rather than, I think, of um, moral debate. Uh, I think it's interesting how this debate has turned so quickly into a kind of referendum on the supposed beastliness of the Germans. That, of course, is our opponent's aim, to set up the Germans as this kind of bogeyman. And it's a testament to what one of the uh, excellent questions uh, talked about, talking about this kind of mist of patriotism, of patriotic propaganda that still distorts our vision uh, of the First World War. I'd just like to answer the very first question, which was about anti-Semitism. Uh, of course, there was anti-Semitism in Germany uh, before the First World War, as there was in almost every society uh, in Europe, including uh, uh, the United States as well, as it happens. But if you were looking for a society in which anti-Semitism was, was, was deep and was visceral and was a horribly unpleasant force, you would look at Russia, or you might perhaps look at France, where the Dreyfus case was still reverberating all those years later. So to argue that in some way there was this kind of latent anti-Semitism in Germany that was of a different order to that in other European countries and was set to poison everything, I think is not right at all. Very good. Max? Uh, two or three quick points. Um, first of all, um, I entirely agree that phrase, the glorious dead, does um, um, chime um, very harshly on us. But one always has to consider the feelings that those who lost loved ones, they have to be made to feel this sacrifice was worthwhile. And these are forms of words that are always used. Um, the Boers, I think that's a fair point, too, to raise. Um, Britain's behaviour during uh, in the South African War was um, less than admirable in many respects, but nothing happened in the, South African, in the South African War that was remotely comparable with the German systematic slaughter of 6,400 civilians lined up against walls in, in Belgium. The concentration camps, nothing, that did not, and we could sit here all night talking about the concentration the concentration camps were an extremely mistaken British policy, an extremely, an ex in many ways, a barbarous British policy, but there was no question of lining bars up against walls and shooting them in cold blood as the Germans did in 1914. Um, I also think that, coming back to this question of the principle of, about Belgium, that it does seem pretty ugly to say, let's decide on a tariff. What was Belgium worth? What was international order? What was actually, should we have said, all right, it's worth 5,000 British lives, but it's not worth 50,000 British lives? You can't do that. In the end, it has always been throughout history, generally considered an honourable and right position for responsible and decent nations to take, that you will try and uphold principles of international law and international order, which were directly and brutally flouted by the Germans in 1914. John. Yes, I think that uh, it's, we've heard that you know, the Empire came to defend Britain. Britain wasn't actually a threat in 1914. Britain may have placed herself in harm's way by getting involved in the war, but really, to invoke that as a cause for the war when Britain had put herself into the war, really, for chutzpah, that's up there with the person on trial for killing his 
parents pleading the fact that he's an orphan in mitigation. <laughs> really? Okay. Now, if we're looking at... Certainly, Margaret's mentioned the thing about, oh, yes, the, 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 the military were in charge in Germany and, and politicians didn't know certain things. But it's perfectly clear that in this country, politicians didn't know certain things. There was no triple entente. Grey had entered into talks and the British military had entered into talks without telling the whole cabinet. And the reason they had not told the whole blooming cabinet is if they had, Lloyd George would certainly have resigned and the Liberal government would have collapsed. And if we're going to reconstruct 1914, we need to bear the politics of the cabinet in mind. Very good. Okay, so on that, that on that note, I'm going to give you the result of the debate. You remember that before the debate, it was 19% for the motion, 40% against, and 41% don't know. And the absolutely dramatic thing is the don't knows have gone down to 1%. And I think that's a, that's a sign of a really good debate. So congratulations. And the, um, whoever the don't knows were, well, they, uh, I, con- I congratulate you on your, on your fortitude and standing up to all these arguments. Uh, but the really important point is that the, um, the four um, people who said that uh, Britain should not have fought in the First World War have gone up from 19% to 27%. But the against who do not believe in the motion, think Britain should have fought, have gone up from 40% to 62%. So I declare... Um, what are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.